Hey there, I'm Ant Morehouse, and welcome to the Antitoxin Podcast. The Antitoxin is designed for the professional who has ticked all the social norm boxes but feels like something is missing. The entrepreneur at risk of losing perspective, and the dreamer who wants to turn their epic idea into reality. Join me and my awesomely authentic and vulnerable guests as we explore how to avoid living lives of quiet desperation and instead aim to achieve what I call the triple crown of having a fulfilling professional life while doing some good in this world while having a hell of a lot of fun along the way. Hey there, everyone. My guest today is Sam Penny. Sam and I only recently met, but I really loved his story and wanted to share it with you. What impresses me about Sam is that he's a really normal guy who was recovering from a back injury and started to do some swimming. A few laps led to a lot of laps, led to an English Channel crossing, and now he's going back for a double crossing, which is from... Dover in the UK, all the way across to Calais in France, and then back again. And what I love about Sam and this interview is that while his accomplishments are really epic, his motivation is about his family and showing that doing epic stuff is really within the grasp of all of us. All right. Hi, Sam. Thanks for uh, coming on to the podcast and whatever else we're doing here with the video. Yeah, thanks a lot, Ant. So you and I met not that long ago through a, a mutual colleague, someone I worked with, you worked with in the military, and we were just having coffee and after about 20 minutes, I thought, oh, man, I wish I had a, I wish I had a microphone and my recording equipment here because the conversation we were having was just you know, right on point to what I want this podcast to be about. Oh, that's good to hear. So it's good that, uh, yeah, it's good that we get to take two and do a, do yeah. a reenactment. <laughs> so I think the thing that I'm most fascinated in talking to you and, and hopefully hopefully some listeners will be as well is is the mindset behind very long-distance swimming. Uh, you've done a crossing of the English Channel and now for whatever reason you're going to go back and not just do it again but do a double where you go from England to France, stop for no more than five minutes, and yep, then exactly, and then and then back again. So we'll get into all of that because that's really intriguing. But I mean, tell me a little bit about your story and, and how you how you find yourself at this point. Yeah, well, I don't know. Sort of, I often ask myself the same thing: How on earth did I become a marathon swimmer? If you asked me, perhaps twelve months ago, I was purely a pool sprinter. You know, sort of fifty meters, hundred meters. Uh, if I was to go into the ocean and here on Sunshine Coast every now and then there's uh, some ocean racing and I would do one kilometre and I would be, that's my limit. That was my limit then. Only a year ago. Yeah, only wow. a year ago. And, you know, sort of I just shied away from anything long. You know, I found that by the end of one kilometre I was absolutely wrecked, which seems weird. But 18 months ago was when I decided to swim the English Channel. And, you know, for four or five years, I was in the pool swimming. And the reason I took up swimming sort of five years ago was rehab for my back. You know, after many, many years of cycling and, you know, competitive cycling, I'd hop off the bike and I couldn't stand up for about five minutes. It just was, it just took me forever to stand up. So 
after seeing physio and doctor and um, my partner, Helen, just said, why don't you hop in the pool? You know, I used to swim as a kid. The last thing I ever thought I would do would be following that black line up and down. And I said, there's no way I can do that. But, you know, if I didn't do that, I'd get fat basically. <laughs> right. So when you said you were swimming as a kid, were you a, a really good swimmer or you were a competitive no. swimmer? Oh, look, I was a competitive swimmer. It sort of, I could make it to state championships, but from memory, I don't think I ever made a final. So I wouldn't have been top 10 at anything. Right. Swimming is one of those sports. It's probably the most technical sport out there. If you didn't do it as a kid, if you didn't learn the technique as a kid, then it's almost impossible as an adult to pick it up and be really efficient at it. And I see, you know, there's many people that I swim with, you know, adults who didn't swim as a kid. You know, I swim with a group of triathletes and you can pick the people straight away who weren't swimmers as kids. It's really unfortunate, but it sort of highlights how important it is to get your kids swimming at an early age. You know, it's a sport that has, it's no weight bearing, it's so good to your body. And, yeah, being able to sort of take up as an adult, I'm extremely lucky that I did do it as a kid. And so you're, you've got a bad back for, through, you know, some chronic cycling stuff. You go into the pool purely for rehab. Yeah. What's the trigger? Well, how do you go from, you know, <laughs> I'm doing a bit of rehab here to I know what I'm going to do, swim the English Channel. What's the mindset shift? Yeah. Well, I guess, uh, I guess the first part was in the pool to do some rehab. And with myself, I can't do exercise for the sake of exercise. I need to compete. Right. I need to be racing. And so I then started doing some master's racings. And what I really focused on was 50s and 100 metres because I was actually, you know, I'm actually okay at it. But then I got to this point where I just wanted my Everest moment. You know, I guess you you get to this point in life, you know, sort of a middle-aged bloke, and you sort of you start to sort of think about, you know, where your life is, and you realise that, you know, sort of as a kid, as a teenager, you know, a young adult, you're competitive, you've got all these goals and everything like that, and you get to, say, your mid-20s, late-20s, and you start, you know, you're in your career, you're starting to, you know, have a family and you're starting to save up for a house and all those kinds of things and then you realise sort of 15, 20 years later that you forgot about yourself. Right. And that's where I just felt I need that Everest moment. I need that thing that just makes me feel very good about myself, you know, make me feel great about myself. But something that really sort of highlighted to me that I have got what it takes to do something that is extraordinary. And was this your first, your first Everest, so to speak? I mean, was it the first time that you've done something truly epic and therefore it was a massive search within yourself? Well, you knew you had that ability going into the channel attempt. No, and I think the, the big part about the English Channel was I wanted to see if I had what it took mentally to string several months together of training. Right. You know, whether I could get out there and motivate myself every single day to, you know, go down to the down to the beach and swim six hours by myself in the ocean. And it wasn't so much the English channel part that I found daunting, it was the training. And, you know, being in my own mind for you know, for hours and hours and hours on end each day, 
that was the part that I didn't know if I had what it took. And when you, when you first told me that, like six hours by yourself in the ocean, you know, you can't, you can't listen to music, you're not, obviously not having a chat with a friend, there's no podcasts or anything yeah. like that, it's just <laughs> your head. Exactly. And, you know, I know that you meditate and I don't meditate because I think that um, swimming, you know, basically you face down, yeah. blowing bubbles, yeah. um, I'm very much meditating each time I go out. And I get asked this question quite a lot, you know, sort of what do you think about? And if I think back across all of the swims that I've done, I don't really think I think about anything. You count though, right? I, yes, I count. And this is, so, you know, when you wake up in the morning and you've got the worst crappy song in your head yeah. that's just so annoying, pretty much every morning I have that. I wake up and I've got this annoying song. So I'll be swimming, say, a six-hour swim in the ocean and I've got the same song on repeat. And usually I only know the chorus, which makes it even worse. So I know 30 seconds of this song. But I also, I count to 10. So every second straight, so one, you know, every time I breathe, two, three, and I count to 10 and do that for 10 hours. Yes. And and so the the counting piece, is that... I mean, what's, what's, is, is that something to do with technique or is it just to clear your head from extraneous thoughts? Or I think, I think a big part of it is it just clears me, you yeah. know, sort of it gives me a focus. And I think in some part perhaps I'm looking forward to the end of that 10 and then mm-hmm. I start again, I look yeah. forward to the end of the 10, you know, sort of really chunking it down. So for my long ocean swims, I feed every 30 minutes. And I break that 30 minutes down, I, I guess, into sort of, you know, when I swim by myself down at uh, Mooloolabar on the Sunshine Coast, I do an over and back course. It's one kilometre over and a kilometre back. So, you know, get over there, that's 15 minutes, get back, you know, there's my half hour, hop out and have a feed. And in between, I'm counting to 10. So it's sort of just, I guess, chunking everything, breaking everything down into smaller pieces, but also clearing my mind so that I can't really think about how boring it is, how uncomfortable I feel, how sore I am, how hungry, how thirsty, how cold, you know, so many different things. Yeah, it was interesting when you said that you don't meditate and I immediately sort of jumped on that and said, actually, that's exactly what it is because in essence, meditation, when you're focusing on the breath or whatever, it's just you're focusing on something fairly mundane to clear out all (laughs) the crap that, you know, normally goes through our our mind. So you go out for a six-hour swim you're by yourself, you've got nothing but a crappy chorus of a crappy song in your head yes. and counting to 10. Do they get dark? I mean, you know, so if I go on a, a ridiculously long run, sometimes it gets dark, but then I have things to distract myself. So I could put on a podcast or I can just eat whenever I want or I could just stop. You can't really do that when you're swimming. So how do you just keep going on a six-hour swim? I think one of the things is that I visualize when I was training for the English Channel I was visualizing what it was going to be like right and I spent a huge amount of time visualizing and so when I was in those sort of periods of you know what on earth am I doing this is dull I start to visualize you know and get all excited but also I had this saying that kept going around in my head I didn't come this far I only come this far right and you know I didn't do the last month or two months or even the last three hours, four hours of swimming to stop there. You know, I've got another two hours to go and the reason I'm doing this is because I want to swim the English Channel. I want to be one of the lucky few 
who have been able to string this training together both physically and mentally and get across. Yeah, and so just, you know, I didn't come this far, to only come this far was probably my greatest motivator. Interesting. And when you're in the water by yourself, particularly, you know, in, in Australia, so I'm coming to sharks. <laughs> Because I've just moved back to the ocean yes. and, and I, I don't have a shark phobia, but I'm certainly conscious of them. And so if I go out into the water, I make sure there's other people out there. So if there's two other people out there, you know, I've, got, I've only got a 33% chance of, of getting bitten by a shark. But sometimes you're out there by yourself for really long periods of time. And you mentioned something to me last time in chat was sometimes you'll just wake up in the morning, you'll think of a shark. And then for the next six hours, that's all you can think about. But yeah. it's still out there. Yes. Oh, yeah. I, had a... not, I don't know if I, don't know if I can do that. I don't know if I've got that in me. Yeah. Yes. I, it's funny. I had a uh, – sometimes I would have a shark procedure go through my head, you know, shark attack procedure. Yep. And uh, it was – I don't know why I used to do this, but basically if I got bitten by a shark, I'd figure if it's small, but it's only going to be a small shark, so mm-hmm. it's going to take a chunk out of my leg or yep. something like that. <laughs> I would be perhaps 100 metres from the beach. On a good day, I'd do that in a minute. Yep. You know, get to the beach, there'd be someone walking along. Yep. I'd give them Helen's mobile number and tell them to text them because I know that if they called her, she wouldn't answer the phone. Yep. A lot of love. Yep. Yeah. Yep. And, yeah, you know, text, Sam's just been bitten by a shark, but he's okay, and, uh, and then call the ambulance. Right. <laughs> But clearly, so, so you're in essence using that procedure to, to stop the, the thought or even the fear being debilitating. Yeah, that's right. You know, some of the people that I have swum with in the ocean just have this huge fear of, you know, what could be out there. And, you know, there have been times when we've been out there and we have seen some, you know, sharks sort of a metre, metre and a half long. You know, there's one occasion I was swimming with a friend, another English Channel swimmer, and we stopped at in the shallows, sort of about waist deep. And I looked under the water and I saw the shark curled around her feet. Oh, my God. <laughs> and I popped my head back up and I didn't know what to say to, yeah. to Kate. And I said, there's a shark at your feet. And the first thing she did was put her head under the water and try and find it and chase it. And it was just this sort of realisation of, you know, it wasn't there to hurt us or harm yeah. us. It was there because it was intriguing. Right. It was intrigued in us, uh, and it just wanted to check us out. Interesting. Yeah. Wow. So, talk me through the logistics now of of an English Channel attempt because it's it's restricted, right? You, you can't just book yourself into a hotel in Dover and then you know off you go in the morning and yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, firstly, it's a tightly controlled thing, as what you know. Climbing Everest is, you know, you buy a permit um, almost. There's about 10 boats that are licensed to take swimmers across. And so you, because there's only 10 boats, you've got to book your boat about two years, three years in advance in some instances. And so your preparation starts for a lot of people two years out, particularly the so the weak swimmers. And I've seen a lot of really weak swimmers take on the challenge. And so, yeah, basically booking this boat two years out and then trying to work out what your training plan is and working there. As soon as I booked the boat, the first thing that I did after that was I recognised that I needed a coaching team. Mm -hmm. You know, I needed to surround myself with the people who had been there, who had done that, and also have a lot of experience of 
other English Channel swimmers. And, you know, I'm an ex-engineer and I love, you know, the statistics and probability of, of life, basically. And so, you know, using their knowledge and expertise to give me the greatest chance of getting across, you know, that they've gathered from, you know, the dozens of people that, that they've helped get across. And my coach is a guy called Trent Grimsey down in Brisbane. He's actually the uh, the current world record holder for the English Channel. Is that right? Yeah, and absolutely brilliant guy. If you met him, you wouldn't even know he was a world record holder. But he's helped dozens, you know, I'd probably say he's at about 100 swimmers now. Wow. He's helped get across the channel. Absolutely fantastic. But also diet, nutrition is a big part of it. You know, my swim was 11 hours and two minutes. And, you know, we had to train and plan our feeding as well because when you're doing something like that, you have to work out how you're going to get calories in. Mm -hmm. And your body doesn't absorb calories very well when it's going that long, but also when it's horizontal. And, yeah, so I had to find a nutritionist, dietitian, who was experienced in uh, ultramarathon swimming. And that lady was Tara Diversity, who's based up in Cairns. Uh, and, yeah, just very lucky that I had these people here in Queensland. And these two people work with people right around the world. I'm just, I'm very lucky. So 11-hour swim, you're feeding every half an hour. Yep. So what do you eat 22 times on a channel? Oh, jeez. So basically everything is high sugar. Right. Um, and the reason for that is we don't want to dip into our fat stores because it's our fat that's keeping us warm. Mm-hmm. Sugar burns faster, it creates energy, it creates heat. And we're talking about cold water swimming. And what we prepare for is 16 degrees in the channel. It can, um, I know someone who did it in about 12 degrees, 13 degrees. When I did it, it was probably the hottest day for a whole decade and the water was 20 degrees, right. which nobody ever has. Right. I was so lucky. But we had prepared for 16 degrees. So we have things like Staminade and um, Ginger Cordial, sort of a Milo Ovaltine kind of mix as well. And so we just rotate through all these drinks so that, you know, we rotate so that the stomach doesn't get upset. A lot of English Channel swimmers get sick whilst they're out there, you know, sort of seasickness, the fact that we're taking on so so much sugar into the gut. Yeah, so wow. just all liquids. Right. And you've got a boat with you? Yes. Yeah, so we swim, swim alongside a boat. Yep. So for 11 hours, all I was doing it was looking at the side of this blue boat uh, called Louise Jane. It had a white dolphin on the side. And interestingly, Helen, who was on the boat, didn't realise it had a dolphin on the right. side. That's all you all, can see. All this thing. <laughs> and, you know, when I was saying I, I counted to 10, basically it was, I felt like I was counting the dolphin every time. Right. There's one dolphin, there's two dolphins, Man. three. <laughs> and when, was, was there points during the swim where you thought about quitting? No. No. On this swim, on this day, everything came together. You know, with... The English Channel, you can only go out when the weather's right. And so we hired a guy out of London to act as our head of support, a guy called Tim Denyer. And he's taken over 100, 150 people across the channel. And basically the procedure is that at about 7 o'clock at night, um, you'll get a call from Tim, you know, to say whether the swim's on or the swim's not on. And um, on this 
one particular night on a Sunday night, we got the call, you know, going to leave Dover Harbour at about quarter past four in the morning and go out. So in the morning we, you know, packed up all of our stuff and we made up all of our feeds, you know, our 22 feeds. Yep. You know, I had my, had my breakfast. I'd already finished or basically done a, a uh, four-day, it turned out to be a six-day carbo loading because the weather pushed us out a couple of days. And then we got down to Dover Harbour at 4 a.m. And you know the movie Cool Runnings? Yeah. Yeah? Okay, so... I didn't think you were going to go there. <laughs> I'm interested to see the relevance here. Yes, for, uh, so... To um, make a bobsled team to the channel. So we arrived at Dover Harbour and it was just the most beautiful day. And there were a couple of other solo swimmers going out that day and also some relay teams. And they were all standing around in a group and I took my bags over and plonked them down in the middle and, you know, I felt like, you know, the, the Jamaican bobsledder at the top of the hill, you know, sort of feeling very Olympic today. Right, right, right. <laughs> that's exactly how I felt. I was so excited. Yeah. And I introduced myself to everybody and said hi and you're having a chat and you know, good luck, everybody. And I was absolutely pumped. And then I saw Tim. And he called us about sort of 10 minutes before and he said, where are you? We're about five minutes away. All right, I'll talk to you when you get here. And then when we saw Tim at Dover Harbour, he said, the boat's broken. Oh, my God. You know, and he said, it's, it's something that can't be fixed. It's the water pump and we just can't, we can't fix it. And at that moment, you've got two ways you can go. You can get angry or just go, well, there's nothing I can do about it. And we were, Helen and I were both very sort of upset by it, I guess, because... You're primed. You know, we had 12 months yeah. of preparation going into this one moment yeah. to tell us that we can't go out. And, yeah, we did a, a Facebook Live video because we had a lot of people following us back in Australia and just said, well, boat's broken and it is what it is. And then... I had to go back over to the group and pick up my bags and say, see you guys, you know, my boat's broken. And everybody's face just dropped because right. they were in the same situation as me, having prepared for a year, you know, some, some of them two years, three years. And just going, it is what it is. You know, there's nothing I can do about it. What's the point of getting upset? And so we drove back to Canterbury, which is where we were staying, and Helen and I basically sat on the couch Yeah. for about an hour, two hours, silence. Right. Because it's, by this stage, it's, it's only about 4.30 in the morning. <laughs> There's not a lot we could do. I'd already had breakfast at 3 a.m. I'd filled my body with a lot of sugar by that stage. Last thing I needed was to go back to bed and sleep, and you can't when you've had so much adrenaline going right. through your body. And so we just sat there for about an hour, two hours, and then we stood up, had a hug, had a cry, and then we stood thought, stuff it, you know, let's just go out. We took the day off that day. We sort of mentally checked out, went and made some stupid videos and, you know, just, just had a fun day and then waited for the call later that day. You know, we spoke to Tim Denyer again a couple of times during the day and said, look, we're still trying to fix this boat. We'll know by five. We've got an engineer turning up at five. We've got the pass, fingers crossed. Got to five, no word. Got to six, nothing, seven, nothing. Eventually got to nine o'clock at night and we still hadn't heard anything. 
and it turned out that Tim was trying to call my Australian number. Uh. And what they were able to do was commandeer another boat because they couldn't get our boat fixed, commandeered another boat, and we're so lucky that these two boat owners were friends and allowed us to go on to there. They had to throw another swimmer off their boat to accommodate us. And the reason they had an 18-hour swimmer on their boat, but there was a weather pattern coming in after about eight hours, and they, they realised that if she went, she wouldn't have made it. And they said, yep, you can have the boat because, um, you know, we were, we were deemed to be under 12 hours. But it wasn't until 9 o'clock at night that we actually got the call to, yep, we've got a boat and we're going. And so that was it, sort of straight off to bed. And I think because we had already gone through the process the night before, all the excitement and the adrenaline right. had already gone. Yeah. It was now a formality. We'd already had that dry run. And I had just such a great sleep. I, was, I had about a six-hour sleep, seven-hour sleep, something like that. I had my lowest resting heart rate of the entire year, and it got down to, I think, 41. Wake up feeling brilliant. Went through the same process as the day before, breakfast, you know, coffee, hydrating on some Jira and all those kinds of things, and uh, got down to Dover Harbour, and luckily a boat turned up and took us. And the rest is history. The rest is history, yeah. Yeah, yeah basically the, the process is that, uh, you know, we motored for about five minutes to beach just south of um, Dover called Shakespeare, Shakespeare Beach. You dive off the boat, swim ashore, the boat sounds its horn once you've cleared the water and then you're gone. Right. You start swimming. Yeah. Yeah. And I started swimming at about 5 a.m. So the sun had just come up and it was just this beautiful sunrise. It was glassy. The water was as smooth as anything you've ever seen. Right. There was no swell. There was no waves. Perfect. And for eight hours, it was just absolutely perfect. And as I was swimming along, because I knew how far we were into the swim by my feet, you know, every 30 minutes, and I also knew what feet I had coming up next. So I was able to really understand how far along I was. And I got to one hour, two hours, and three hours. And I was, I was flying, and I felt so good. And I, you know, said to the guys on the boat, I just feel brilliant. And then, you know, head back down and kept swimming. Uh, and each, uh, there's these different sections where we get into the international waters and we move through shipping lanes because it's an extremely busy shipping area. And, you know, they, the guys on the boat would pop up signs to let me know sort of physically where we were. And, you know, six hours, eight hours, I was still at the same pace and I just felt absolutely fantastic. And it was then that I was starting to recognise all the work I put in over the previous months, all the time that I've been face down, you know, on the Sunshine Coast in the ocean, you know, for hours and hours on end, you know, 20 hours a week with my face in the water. All of it was for this moment. Right. And all of a sudden just made sense. And I realised that mentally I had made it. And then the last three hours were, I mean, where are you physically versus mentally? I mean, it sounds like you were in a very good space mentally. Mentally. physically as well. Yeah, mentally and physically. I didn't, you know, apart from, you know, some jellyfish things in my face, Mm -hmm. I was good. Right. And then at eight hours, we knew that this weather pattern was coming through. And so we 
you know, we started to get some white horses. So it started to chop up quite a bit. It rained, and which obviously doesn't affect me in the water, but um, the guys on the boat put the plastics down on the side of the boat. Right. And all of a sudden, here I am, shut off from the boat. Yeah. yeah. That was demoralizing. When I just gone, what are you doing? You know, sort of, and I was, I was starting to get angry. You know, this is sort of eight hours, nine hours, you know, out in the ocean. And here they are screening me off because they're getting wet. Right. I was going, you've got to be kidding me. And Helen knew that I would not be happy with that. So she stuck her head through a hole. Luckily, sort of, she knew sort of how I would be mentally if, if she saw that. And, um, yeah, luckily she redeemed it for everybody on the boat because at that point I was, I was not a happy camper. And what's it like when you touch down, when you put your feet on solid solid ground, you know, in, yeah. in France. Yeah, well, perhaps the most surreal part is swimming along and then all of a sudden you can see the bottom. Right. And you haven't seen anything but, you know, deep blue water and jellyfish for 11 hours and then uh, you can see rocks and sand and after sort of – it takes a while for it to register but then you realise – Hang on, that's France. And so we landed at this place called Cap Greenez, which is the closest point to Dover. And as an English channel swimmer, that's the most ideal point to land at. And it's, it's cliffs as well. We landed at, uh, at low tide. So I had to, when you do, uh, do the swim, you have to clear the water. So I had to pull myself up over rocks. I got, you know, cuts down me uh, over the sharp rocks and then stand up on these rocks that have just been exposed by the tide that are all slippery, yeah. they're wobbly, you know, they're on a lean, my legs don't work because I haven't used them for 11 hours trying to stand up, and then you finally stand up and then you realise that you've made it. Um, you know, you have this moment of just looking around. It's not the biggest hurrah moment, I think, because you've just, you know, you've been doing it for 11 hours, it's sort of thank God it's over, but just the sense of satisfaction. You know, it's not a big party moment, but just internally in your mind, just this whole satisfaction of, you know, everything came together. You know, I did exactly what all the experts told me to do. I didn't once deviate from my training plan, didn't once deviate from my diet plan, did everything Tim Denny had told me to do who was on the boat, and, yeah, you know, it made me realise that I can do more if, you know, I surround my pe- myself with the right people. A tradition of, of swimming the channel is you collect a rock. So you collect a rock from France and, uh, you know, between Helen and myself, we've got four kids. So I had to collect four rocks, yeah. you know, a rock for them, a rock for myself, a rock for Helen. Right. And then, you know, the only thing I could do is shut them down my budgie smugglers. <laughs> and they're, they're, you know, good sizable rocks. Yeah. You know, they fit in your palm. Yeah, each one fits in your palm, so six of those down your togs. Not an easy swim back to the boat. No, I can imagine. And so this really should be the end of this interview. You know, we're done. You've done the channel. Congratulations. Thank you. Um, but you're going to do it again, but with a double. What the hell would you want to do that for? I think one of the big things that, are, that I was looking for when I did the channel was I wanted to know how far I could push my body and push my mind. I wanted to know what it's going to take to put me in the fetal position. 
basically. Mm-hmm. You know, where I'm an absolute blubbering mess on the floor. And I thought that Swimming the English Channel was going to do that. But I hopped on the boat and stood in the wheelhouse with the crew for the two-and-a-half-hour trip back to England, just, you know, chatting to them. And, you know, just, I stood the whole time and just felt, just felt really good. The next morning we jetted off to France for a bit of a holiday and it took about four days for my lats to stop hurting and, you know, it took four days for me to be able to put my arms above my head. But during that whole time, I felt like I hadn't achieved what I'd set out to feel. I felt that I wanted to do something harder, you know, and I just want to find that moment, you know, that fetal position moment. And so I figure, well, you know, there's only about 20 people in the world who have ever done a double crossing. Wow. And a quarter of those are Australians. And I figure, stuff it, you know. It's going to be a 22-hour, 24-hour swim, something like that. If that doesn't put me in a fetal position, then, geez, you know, (laughs) I'm kind of hoping that it will because if it doesn't, who knows where I'm going to end up. Yeah. And so you... It's the same process. You, you go from Dover over to France. And then what's the rule on the turnaround? Yeah, so basically you've got to clear the water at France. Nobody can touch you at all when you're doing your swim. So sometimes, for example, we'll land at, you know, you might land at a beach. If you land at the beach, there's quite often some, some Frenchies there, you know, just enjoying the beach for the mm-hmm. day. But they love channel swimmers coming in. So, you know, they all get excited, come down and congratulate yeah. you and everything like that. But if one of those people touches me, it disqualifies oh, me wow. from the swim. Right. So basically, you know, our crew are going to have to have signs in French just, you know, do not touch the swimmer. Right. I've then got, you know, sort of five, 15 minutes or so to get back in the water. It all depends what the, what the air temp's going to be like, you know, it's probably going to be cold. The more time I spend out of the water, the colder I'm going to get. But also the more time I spend out of the water, the longer it's going to take yeah. me to do my attempt. Because the clock doesn't stop. No, exactly. Right. That's, that's exactly right. So basically I've got enough time to, you know, put on some more channel grease on my sort of chafing points, you know, that white film that you always see channel yeah. swimmers in, and, you know, maybe have something a little bit more solid to eat hop back in the water and do it again. Wow. And do you change your training at all or is it all just a mental shift? Yeah. So actually one of my friends is doing a double crossing attempt this year and she's only 17, Brianna Thompson. 17? 17. She's 17. Has she done it? Like has she done it? Yeah, she did it uh, last year. I'm happy to say I was 50 minutes faster, even though she had a crappy, (laughs) crappy day, you know, sort of weather-wise. And 16. Yeah, yeah. But I still beat her by 50 minutes. (laughs) Wow. But, you know, sort of, you know, she's up here this weekend to do two six-hour swims back-to-back. So she'll go six hours Saturday, six hours Sunday. She's swimming about 70 kilometres a week, which she was doing for her single attempt. So really the main difference that we do for a double attempt is just those six-hour back-to-backs. Right. Physically after six hours, you're feeling pretty stuffed. No um, The next day you pull up quite sore. Yeah. But just being able to, having to get in the water and do it again, you know, sort of use that first half an hour, an hour to warm up, to stretch the muscles out, to try and get over the pain, you know, sort of using your your pain medication regime to yep. do whatever you can 
but mentally, mentally really trying to get in that right space where you can, yep, I can do this this second leg. And with the, the double, you hop out at halfway and, you know, you, the only way I believe that I can really get back in the water is to consider that first leg the warm-up. Right. Because it's really that, you know, it's that return leg where, you know, everything becomes extremely difficult. You know, that's where the pain through your shoulders is just excruciating, where you've been awake for, you know, more than 24 hours. You're probably, you know, starting to get quite hypothermic. Your mind's starting to get, you know, foggy. So, yeah, really trying to sort of stay motivated and, you know, keep the mind sharp, keep the body warm and, just hope to God that you make it. Wow. So I'm fascinated in, in just the theme of this podcast, just about, you know, every, everybody's got dreams. Many of us sort of have our dreams and then life takes over and we sort of lose track of all of that. And, you know, hopefully this, as people are listening to this, maybe they're rekindling some of their previous dreams or coming up with a new one or, you know, considering some sort of challenge regardless of how, how epic. And I'm always fascinated by... I'm trying to understand why, what separates those people that can get off the couch, surround themselves by, you know, people that have been there, done that, have the expertise, you know, formulate a progressive plan towards achieving an optimal goal and then sticking to it. And then those, those who can't do that for whatever reason. So you're clearly an athlete, but you're still very human. You know, you're still, you're not a, you're not a, you know, a Lance Armstrong kind of no, not an elite athlete right. by any yeah. stretch, yeah. no. And this is something that I've pondered a lot sort of just before my Channel Swim and post and something I get asked quite a lot, why? Mm. You know, why did you do it and, you know, how do you do it? I think the biggest thing is that the reason why I wanted to do it, you know, my purpose was the one, you know, the biggest motivating thing you know, to prove to myself that I had what it took to do something extraordinary, to have something to show my kids how, you know, with determination and focus you can achieve anything. And, you know, there's times when I'm out in the ocean and I have a little cry, you know, when I'd be thinking about those kinds of things, you know, when I'd be thinking about our kids, you know, being motivated to get out and do stuff, to, you know, get up off the couch and so it's because it's not easy getting up at say 4:30 in the morning every morning and going swimming six seven days a week right there's nothing easy about it but using the power of your purpose got me through so many training sessions and you know i would say that pretty much every single training session there is a point that i have where i think to myself i could just hop out right now I could hop out, but then I think about why I'm doing it. You know, why am I, why am I swimming right now? And it's to get stronger, to do a double crossing, to get faster. But, you know, and why do I want to do a double crossing? It's to show myself that I can do something that is truly world-class. You know, so when I do it, I'll be 46. Mm-hmm. And I think just to, to be, you know, sort of, you know, the 20th, 21st person in the world to have ever achieved this thing. You know, as a 46-year-old, yeah. when you feel like, well, you know, life 
has already passed. You know, the, your chance to do anything amazing has passed. But I feel I've got this opportunity. And for the kids to, I, I guess, see that they've got this, you know, this dad who goes out and, you know, to many people think it's crazy, but um, to the kids, you know, they now think it's normal. Right, yeah. Um, How powerful is that? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. You know, they see that getting up at, you know, 4.30 in the morning is normal. Mm. You know, three of our, or particularly two of our kids, an 8-year-old and 10-year-old, right into swimming. So, and it's great because I can go to the pool with them. Mm. So they do their squad whilst I do my squad. You know, they don't whinge about it and they know why they're swimming. They're only swimming because they want to swim. Yeah. Um, not once do I ever push them. You know, I'll ask them, you know, do you want to get up and go swimming? But, yeah, they want to go swimming because they just want to be faster. They want to beat, you know, the bigger kid. They want to do well at their school swimming and, you know, and feel proud about getting their little blue yeah. ribbons. Yeah. yeah, so there's so many things that really motivate me, but the big purpose of, you know, the purpose of why I'm doing it is the overriding thing that gets me out there, gets me off the couch and keeps me going. Fantastic, fantastic. So that's that's all I have. Is there any anything else you want to you know talk through you know or, or bring up? We can take it anywhere you want. Yeah, I, I think as a you know you would know as, as a middle aged bloke, you tend to sort of lose your way. Yeah, and I think that that's where I started to get to, which is why I wanted to go out and do this. And you don't need to go and do a off the bat an English Channel or you know sort of climb Everest or an ultra marathon or anything like that. You know that saying that I said earlier. I didn't come this far to only come this far. I came this far to go further, to be stronger. Rings true. You know, setting those achievable goals and, you know, those smaller steps of, you know, something that that is achievable but is a stretch. You know, going out and, you know, I just want to get off the couch and do a 5K run straight without stopping. For a lot of people, would be extremely hard. But... If you put your mind to it and have the right purpose, you know, that thing that's really going to motivate you, I think that, you know, you can really then take that first step. And once you achieve that five, that five Ks or whatever that first goal is, you know, don't stop there. Didn't come this far, don't come this far. Yeah, it's great. You know, go to 10 Ks, yeah. go to half marathon or marathon or, you know, do a triathlon or, you know, and the same thing with business, you know, People sort of look at the successful entrepreneurs out there, you know, the big businesses that they've built, but, you know, they all started off small. They had these small steps all along the way. And, you know, with every single step, you gain confidence. With every single step, you gain more experience and more skills. And if you want to be one of those, you know, bigger entrepreneurs, for example, or one of these athletes doing an English channel or an ultra marathon like yourself, recognize what it takes. You can't do it off the bat, but if that's where you want to be, you know, follow that journey. The journey of my English channel swim has been one of the most amazing things I've ever done in my life. The people that I've met along the way, English channel swimmers, there is no defined English channel swimmer. They're all a little bit chubby because they've got their their layer of insulation, their layer of brown fat. But, you know, some of them, you know, Brianna, 17, uh, you know, another one, Mary Stoddart, 63, took her 18, 17 hours, not a swimmer, but she just decided that she was going to swim the English Channel. 
And, you know, her and her husband would get out in the bay at, at Redcliffe Bay, you know, pretty much every weekend, get out for six hours. She'd get out quite often and do 10-hour swims because she knew hers was going to be long. Right. But 63. mentally, you're 63 because it's what she wanted to do. It reminds me of the, um, the first 100-mile ultra I did. Finished, terrific, you know, achieved the goal and was quite humbling as an experience. But then the award ceremony was in the, the high school gym in Leadville in, in Colorado. And by the time I entered the gym, my, my ego was starting to build and I was starting to get a bit chuffed with myself. And then the formal ceremony started and they made a special announcement to the oldest person in the field that had accomplished it, 73 years old. And it just brought me right back down to earth because I thought, you know, I thought bluntly that I was pretty good for finishing it when I was like 38. And he's a 73-year-old who only came in, you know, not even an hour slower than me. And, um, yeah, so I keep thinking back to that of just how much life we have left in us. So you know, you're, you've done it at 46, this lady's 70, uh, 63. Yeah, the guy who did Leadville, you know, pounding on the, on, of the knees at 73 years old. I mean, we've just got so much life left in us that so much more we can, can achieve. And, and I think that's a generation ago people weren't thinking that way. You know, but now we, we are able to, to live such a life and be so healthy if we, if we engineer our lives to do that. So my personal goal is to be the fastest 100-year-old in the world. Whether that's yeah. true or not, it doesn't really matter. It's, it's sort of within myself. It's to keep me focused on I can still be achieving things and living, you know, well, in, well into that, you know, triple, triple figures. Yeah, absolutely fantastic. And I completely agree with you. I was at, uh, lucky to be at Commonwealth Games Commonwealth Games trials down the Gold Coast for swimming. And there was this guy there, George Cronus, right, 100 years old. And swimming in Australia had uh, basically effectively cleared the pool for George to do a world record attempt at the 50 metres freestyle. Awesome. And um, absolutely, I was lucky to be pool deck um, at that time. And, uh, you know, the stands were full. It was electric. We'd, we had actually just swum right before George, so that's why we were pool deck. And George was sort of walked down. He came out through the the smoke, and you know the cameras are on him, and you know Rocky. It, it was yeah. everything was rock star wow. about it. And he got down there, and he dived in, and just went for it. And he beat the record from memory by about thirty seconds or so. It's amazing. And the best part about it was he hopped out, and he said, "I jumped in the water, and I just went for it." And he said, you know, he took up swimming when he was 80. So he's only been swimming for 20 years. But he said, you know, I realised that if you sit around, you die. Right. And so that's why he goes swimming every single day. And here he is setting world records. You know, you, anybody who has a world record, you have to call them an elite athlete Absolutely. regardless of Absolutely. Uh, how old they are. <laughs> but it just made me realise that, you know, we spend too much of our time just sitting around, just yeah. waiting for things to happen. Almost sounds like a Dr. Seuss, right, right, a Dr. Seuss book. But we do. We all wait for something to happen. You know, the only way you're going to get stuff done is by getting off your ass and actually doing it. And you know, for me, it was getting off my ass and getting into the pool. And the first, you know, when I took up swimming five years ago. 
I would probably say the first three months were terrible. Mm. You know, I was in the slowest lane. It just hurt. I felt slow. I didn't enjoy it. Then I really started to form the habit of swimming. The form the habit of getting off my ass is probably the biggest thing. And if you can get your, get off your ass and out the door, you're 90% of the way there. Definitely, yeah. Yeah, so just forming the habit and understanding why you're doing it. Because I knew that if I didn't do it, I'd just get fat. Right. And I didn't want to, I didn't want to be that. I didn't want to be that person. I didn't want to be that person that the kids would see. Mm-hmm. You know, I wanted to be fit. I wanted to be healthy. I wanted to be inspiring to the kids and, you know, motivated. And I think just so many people in this world, all they need to do is just work out why they want to do something and then get off their ass and get out the door. Beautiful. Sam, thanks very much, mate. Thanks, Sam. Well, that's a wrap for today, everyone. I sincerely appreciate your time. I'd love to hear your feedback and get your reviews. If there's anyone who you think I should be interviewing, send me their details and I'll reach out. And please share this with anyone in your life who you think might connect with what we're all about here at The Antitoxin. Have fun out there today and try not to take life too seriously.